Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, all right, Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, Uh, Better Hope, we're going to read from verse 11 down to the end of chapter, and it says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood... Being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Verse 14. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Oh, what a great thought. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. The Old Testament Mosaic law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's why the title of the message is Better Hope. Verse 20, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, there it is again, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus has become a surety, a guarantee of a better covenant, the new covenant. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, verse 25 should be uh, one you consider memorizing. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is there anybody else in the universe like that? No, not one. There we go. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Whew, a whole lot there. Well, that's pretty technical. I mean, this is legal-type reasoning, probably the most... um, you have to follow it real close, just like some of the reasoning that Paul does in the book of Romans. Uh, I've often thought that, um, you know, that uh, uh, Romans really uh, helps us understand the um, exposition of the moral law 
you know, the Old Testament law divides into three parts, moral law, priestly law, and then the, um, uh, the civil law that uh, was up until the time Christ came. And in the New Testament, uh, Romans, this is not in your notes, but Romans has a key place in uh, letting us know what God wants us to think about the moral law, God's timeless moral law. The book of Hebrews has a key role in helping us understand the priestly law and how it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, including the tight, reasoned argument that we've got here in Hebrews 7. And the book of Galatians helps us understand that the civil part of the Old Testament law about diet, diets and circumcision and other things, uh, it is now obsolete that Christ has come, now that Christ has come. So there it makes the great conclusion the law, the civil part of the law, was the tutor, the guardian to lead us to Christ. Now that Christ has come, we're no longer under that guardian. We are of age and we can uh, walk by faith instead of the training wheels, the scaffolding, however you want to say it, that the law, the civil part of the law provides. So anyway, before your eyes glaze over, let me tell you a joke here. Ready? There was a good southern named Bubba, and he applied for an engineering position at a Lake Charles, Louisiana refinery, and a Yankee applied for the same job. So Bubba and the Yankee. Both applicants had the same qualifications and were asked by the manager to take a test. Upon completion of the test, both men had missed only one of the questions. The manager went to Bubba and said, Thanks for your interest, Bubba, but we've decided to give the Yankee the job. And that's when Bubba protested. He said, Looky here, why are you giving him the job? We both got nine questions correct. This being Louisiana and all, and me being a good Southern boy, I should get the job. The manager said, Well, we've made our decision not on the correct answers, but rather in the one question that you both missed. You see, Bubba, it's like this. Uh, Bubba, on that one question, on question number four, the Yankee put down, I don't know, and you put down, neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, today we're going to celebrate the work of Jesus Christ. Really, all of Hebrews does that. I love the word better, better that's in Hebrews, so many, occurs so many times. We've learned so many of the ways that Jesus is better, better than the Mosaic Law, better than the angels, better uh, than just it builds and builds and builds, doesn't it? Along with a few times where the author of Hebrews stops and gives warnings uh, about uh, not making the most of your faith. And then we're in this part in chapters 5 through 7 where he argues that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, not Aaron. Now, some of the things you see in these chapters repeat themselves, and so it does. it's a challenge to preach through the book of Hebrews, uh, but we know that repetition is the mother of all learning. And so just as some of the Psalms we're looking at on Sunday night kind of repeat certain themes to get them in our heads, these blockheads of ours, as Lucy would say, you know, from Charlie Brown, uh, we're, we're all blockheads, Charlie Brown, you know. Uh, we get some of these things repeated so it'll get in there. So we're going to zero in on a few truths from the rest of Hebrews 7 here. And we see the first one really emphasized in verse 14, verses 11 through 14. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And that's okay. And that's okay. He's from the tribe of Judah, not of Levi. And that's okay. Whenever I hear about Jesus being from the tribe of Judah, I think about 
uh, how he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation. And I think about C.S. Lewis brilliantly portraying Aslan as a lion, and Aslan's the god-like figure, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia. I hope you had a chance to read those to children or grandchildren. If you've never been through them, I think you'd still enjoy them. And there's just so many things that make you think about Jesus in there and what he's done for us. But Jesus being from the tribe of Judah actually fulfills one of the Bible's oldest prophecies. And so if you want to put a finger there in Hebrews and turn back to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. One of the, I think it's the best prophecy made to the sons of Jacob you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, And it's fascinating because um, I would think the best prophecy would be made to Joseph because of how awesome he is in Genesis 37 to 50. He's got high character. He's got a tremendous outlook. He believes in the sovereignty of God. He's not vindictive toward his brothers. Man, everything I want to be when I grow up, you know, and that we want for those that we, uh, you know, disciple and lead. Uh, In contrast, his brother Judah was a mess and a scallywag and a, uh, you know, just a first time we meet Judah, he's, you know, in, you know, as things are going along, he's kind of helping sell his brother into slavery, so he's responsible for Joseph going to slavery, and then he has this weird sexual. Uh, relationship, he thinks it's with a prostitute, that would be bad enough. But it winds up being his daughter-in-law who's tricked him. She gets pregnant with twins and then she tricks him again so that he finds out in the presence of a whole bunch of people instead of stoning her to death, he figures out, oh, she's tricked me because I wasn't being right to her. I said I'd send, uh, you know, uh, you know, I hadn't given my other sons, uh, you know, the two to take, I hadn't given my sons, other sons, to her to uh, fulfill the Levitical uh, law kind of thing. That's going to we're going to see later on in Leviticus from Genesis. But anyway, um, so he's a mess. He's a mess. But he did one great thing. He did one great thing. It's around Genesis forty four, forty five. Um, Joseph is in Egypt as the Pharaoh's right hand man. They don't recognize him in all his Egyptian paint and stuff like that. And he is about to keep Benjamin in servitude and send the other brothers away. And Judah steps forward and says, no, take me, in essence, even if it means death, because it'll kill dad if that boy doesn't go back. So take me instead. I'm willing to, whatever that means, even death. Uh, Take me and put me in the place of Benjamin's judgment. And that's when Joseph broke down, right? And it's almost like Jesus was looking down from heaven and he said, Father, when I go to earth, that's the tribe I want to be from because that's what I'm going to do for sinners. I'm going to step forward and take their place. What Judah was willing to do but didn't have to, I'm willing to do. And so you get to Genesis 49, and yes, Joseph gets in his two sons that become two different tribes. That's a double blessing. He gets both Ephraim and Manasseh get good blessings given to them. But nothing's as good in Genesis 49 as the spiritual blessing given to Judah that says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means light, until the light comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And I put in, uh, if you go forward a little bit, dot, 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 He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. 
So a ruler will descend from Judah who uh, people will have to obey. He is the light (laughs) of the world, basically. People have to obey him, and he's going to wash his garments in wine, which represents blood, right, and the blood of grapes. And so sometime in the future, a descendant of Judah is going to wear bloody clothes as he uh, becomes the one people have to obey, and he's the light that gives truth out. Pretty cool, right? Great prophecy. That prophecy was made by Jacob nearly 1,800 years before Jesus came, and that's pretty cool. Revelation 5.5, that's why it says, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So uh, when Revelation 5.5, they look around and no one's worthy to open the scrolls and to initiate the final judgment of earth so that all the blessing earth's going to have in the new earth to come. Uh, Nobody's able to do that, except then he sees Jesus who is worthy to do that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. So through the line of Judah, Jesus is the perfect ruler. He can still be our perfect priest because he's of Melchizedek's priesthood, which predates the tribe of Levi's priesthood. So if you're keeping track here, I remember how this hit me so much when I was first studying this. Sometimes the Bible answers questions. We Gentiles... Didn't know enough to ask. (laughs) Now, if a Jewish person was thinking about the Messiah being prophet, priest, and king, they're like, wait a second. The king, that comes through which tribe? Judah. On all the way back to Genesis 49, the kingly line is supposed to come through the tribe of Judah. But if he's going to be a priest, the priestly line comes through what tribe? Levi through the sons of Aaron, Aaron and sons. I wouldn't have even thought to ask that question. How can he be both those things if it's two different tribes? Well, now we know the answer. There's a tribe that, there's a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood, and that is this order of Melchizedek that only has one occupant. (laughs) Melchizedek, who's probably a a pre-incarnate Christ, uh, you know, there in, in Genesis 14. And then Psalm 110 says, it's the most quoted passage in all the New Testament, that the Messiah will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's okay because Abraham ties to Melchizedek. We saw that last chapter. He represented the, you know, representing the, the value and worth he attributed to God as, as Melchizedek was before him. And then um, Abraham, the one who expressed that faith, is the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, who's the father of the 12 tribes, including the Levi, who becomes the tribe of Levi there, that that priesthood, that's the temporary one under the Mosaic law. Now, if you keep in track of covenants in the Old Testament, the big ones for the Jews, there's three big ones for the Jews. What's the first big tribe for, the first big covenant for the Jews in the Old Testament? Abrahamic covenant, that's right. Starts in Genesis 12, and Abraham is promised, uh, because of his faith, he is promised that God is going to use him in a unique way, and three big promises go along with the Abrahamic covenant. None of this is in your notes. This is all uh, just putting it together because we can, right? What are those three great promises that were part of the Abrahamic covenant? I'll bless you, and you'll be the source of blessing. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who, uh, you know, so you'll be a great nation uh, was one of those things, Um, you know, and 
A second big blessing was you'll, you'll have a great land. I'm going to give you the promised land. It's made clear as the promise is repeated to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the nations after that, that this was unconditional. Abraham, some of your descendants might be sorry that I have to judge, but within that Abrahamic covenant, I promise that that land is eternally belongs to your descendants. Um, and then, of course, the promise of the seed, the Messiah that would come. Uh, those are all key blessings as part of great nation, great uh, land endowment, and also uh, that the Messiah would come. Okay, so that's the first one. And the second one is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant or Mosaic Law, but it is conditional. It's given to the, the descendants of Abraham as part of the Abrahamic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant in contrast, so, so the Abrahamic Covenant was unconditional. It was literal. God means it, what he's going to say, that he's going to do these things. And... Um, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. They would be blessed if they obeyed. They'd be cursed if they disobeyed. And Deuteronomy goes clearly into, you'll be blessed if you do this, cursed if you don't. I'll bless you in the land if you do what I say. If you don't do and you start doing those wicked things the nation does, I'll rip you right out of there and put you in captivity for maybe even hundreds of years. And you know, But I'll, I'll keep the promise I made to Abraham. You know, So... It was temporary. It was temporary. It was the what we can now call the old covenant up until the time the Messiah comes. And that's where the third covenant comes in. What's the third big Jewish covenant? The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7 and other places we're told. Psalm 89 is a good reminder of it too. That um, David, who was descended from the tribe of Judah, but isn't it interesting, Revelation says Jesus is the root of David. He's the root of David and the fruit of David. Right, he's a he 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 was before David. He's a descendant of David, right? But the Davidic covenant said that a future son of David would sit on the throne promised to David in the land promised to Abraham. And we look forward. Daniel and other prophets look forward to that being fully realized at what we would now call Christ's second coming. But the Davidic covenant is also un, literal and unconditional. Uh, it's very carefully parsed out. Individual sons of David might blow it, Solomon did, others did, and have to experience built-in consequences of their sin. But God had made an unconditional promise, a literal promise, that will one day be fulfilled. Isaiah has lots of references to thinking of the wonderful age to come that's not quite the new earth yet, but it'll be unprecedented time of blessing for Israel in the land, the entire nations of the world looking to Israel with um, the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem on the throne promised to David and the land promised to Abraham and all those things coming to pass. We call that uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ that Revelation 20 speaks of when those things literally happen before the final judgment and then the new earth realities. Um, so... But this helps us answer a question we didn't even know to ask as Gentiles. How can he be from these? Uh, how can he be a prophet, priest, and king when those are different tribes? Now there was no one tribe associated with the prophets. Those came from all of Israel's tribes, so he could be any of those. But to be the ruler, he had to be of Judah. To be the priest, we would think that he'd have to be from Levi. But this explains he's from an even earlier one. That even Levi, when he later called for tithes. Anyway, it all gets parsed out. Pretty cool. Well, let's skip forward. 
The law can't do what the Lord of the law can do. Let's look again at verses 18 and 19. The verses before that kind of build up to it. For on the one hand, there's a nulling of the former commandment of the law because of its weakness and unprofitableness. This is what we mean when we say the Old Testament, uh, you know, is um, we don't have to do the... Uh, uh, the, the, the details of the Old Testament law. When we say we're under grace instead of law, there's a, a nulling of those. Um, verse 19 tells us, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is bringing, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So one of the things Hebrews also explains to us is why committed Christians don't get goats and sheep and oxen and other sacrifices called for in the Old Testament and bloodily offer those now. We don't need to because Christ is the perfect priest. By the way, there are some really ignorant Christians around the world that still have animal sacrifice as part of their rights, but they just haven't studied Hebrews closely enough because it says don't do that. We don't need to do that. So when it says on the one hand there's a knowing of the former commandment, it's talking about things related to the priestly law. We don't need to find a descendant of Levi to offer a sheep or a goat or whatever uh, like that. When it comes to saving people, the law, the Old Testament law, is weak, he says here. It wasn't powerful enough to save. And then he also says it was unprofitable. So verse 18, it, it, it had weakness and unprofitableness. It was not rich enough to save. So now those verses intrigue me because I love the Old Testament law. I mean, I really do. I, I, I uh, think it's genius. I think it's genius how God gave... Um, you know, not only the moral law rooted in the Ten Commandments that still is timelessly applicable for us. I think it's genius how he gave the priestly law so people could be temporarily forgiven and have their sins taken care of before Christ came and offered the final payment the, that, that made everything paid in full. I think the civil law is genius. Man, I know people sometimes laugh at some of the things it says about not eating shellfish and stuff like that, but God was taking care of his people. And he was taking care of the vulnerable in their midst. And, and I just love it. I mean, almost everything connects with a good reason where God's taking care of somebody when you look at all those laws. I love it. I love it. Um, and so I love studying it. Israel found a way to have... Have you all ever done any prison ministry? I know David's doing some now and stuff like that. I hate prisons. I wish we didn't have to have them. God's so progressive. <laughs> Israel had a way to have a country without having prisons. Think about that. Now, they had to exercise the death penalty for a few more things than we do in the modern world and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, uh, and there was clear laws about restitution and retribution. And since you can't give back a life after you take it, you forfeited yours. And you also had the death penalty, things like kidnapping and, you know, just violence toward uh, others. Um, so anyway, when you look at the law... It's stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger and richer than Bill Gates, but the law was never meant to be an end in itself, a means of being acceptable to God without knowing God. This is the key thing the Pharisees forgot. They had made the law an end in itself, and you still run into uh, you know, wonderful Jewish people who love their Old Testament law, but it gets tedious as they argue fine points of minutia to the things they've added in to the Old Testament. And, and Jesus rightfully... Uh, you know, chided them for that, you know, um, uh, that they had missed the point. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But that's what verse 19 means when it says, the law doesn't make anyone perfect or complete. And I think about the saints we see in Hebrews 11. So we're going to get to that wonderful chapter, perhaps the finest in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, certainly the most memorable. 
if you were to say pull one chapter out of the book of Hebrews to bless the world with, you'd say, well, let's go to that hall of faith. You know, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did that. By faith, Isaac and Jacob and Rahab, you know, and Joshua and all the ones, you know. But uh, the saints we see in Hebrews 11, God's hall of faith got this. They did not pursue the law as an end in itself, but drew near to God by faith. And Hebrews 11 commends them for having faith in God who had given the law and the truth to them. So it's precisely what verse 19 says is true of the better hope Jesus brings. It makes knowing God personally a reality. It makes knowing God personally a reality. And uh, I love that about how uh, we started with uh, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus, no, not one, in the John 15 verse that says, I call you friends. And God wants us to draw near. We're moving toward that verse, verse 25, in a minute we're going to see. What does John 1, 17 say? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And really, it all comes from God, right? I mean, Moses gave the law on behalf of God. He had met with God on the mountain and came down and gave it. This is just a beautiful way of saying that we had God's basic expectations come down in the Old Testament through the teaching from Moses to us, the Ten Commandments, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace is a person, truth is a person, his name is Jesus, and now that um, he has come, does anybody know what John 1.18 says, the verse right after that? Sword drill, somebody pull it out and read it for us. Who can find it first? What's, yeah. What does the rest of it say? You got the first part right. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Okay. Awesome. No one's seen God at any time except now that Jesus has come. He has explained Him. You know what the word there is? The same word we get exegesis from. Uh, you say, what does that mean, Pastor Danny? Well, when you when a pastor or a Sunday school teacher exegetes a text, they're bringing what's out of the text to life and presenting it, right? So they're letting the text speak for itself. And Jesus says, it's John 1.18 says that Jesus has exegeted the Father for us. Now that Jesus has lived and come to earth, we celebrate at Christmas, we celebrate at Easter, we think of all he did, and the world never again needs to ask, what is God like? God's like Jesus. Jesus has shown us what God looks like. I and the Father are one. Show me the Father, the disciple said, right, Philip? And he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, um, which is pretty cool. So uh, maybe to help us understand what the law can't do, it would help us to look for what the law can do. So just a few minutes, what the law can do. Um, first of all, the law reveals the heart of the lawgiver. What are some of the ways the law reveals the heart of the lawgiver? God's heart for his glory. God's heart for justice. God's heart for mercy and second chances. God's heart for widows and orphans and those that have a big need. God's heart for women and children. God's heart for the poor and foreigners, including little laws like that a tenth of the crops were to be left for um, poor people and foreigners in their midst. So, uh, that was kind of like God's welfare program. Pretty progressive, too. You know, nobody's going to go hungry because, uh, you know, and 
I don't know, uh, David. Um, you harvest some crops. Is Michael considering leaving a tenth for others to come up and grab? <laughs> He's a deer. <laughs> <laughs> Not, right? Yeah, we don't do that. We don't do that. But God's commanded Israel. You remember what it was like to be trying to get a new start uh, coming out of Egypt. Remember how hard that was, 40 years of wandering. So I want you to leave 10% of your stuff, your crops that you make, so that a poor person that needs a little help can get it. By the way, I'm reading Harry Truman's uh, a book about Harry Truman. It's pretty funny. And he mentioned a time that uh, his mom uh, was um, helping, uh, you know, back in those days, sometimes people would get off a train or something, a hobo or something, and go up to a house and ask, I'm hungry, is there something I can eat? You know, and she, like others, following biblical principles like this, would do that. So she gave a fellow something to eat and gave him a cup of coffee, you know, and he complained about the coffee being cold. Well, Harry Truman's mom, it might have been his grandmom, anyway, went back in the house, got the shotgun, and went to the porch and said, I'll, I'll uh, kindly ask you to leave now. <laughs> so don't complain about the coffee being cold if you're partaking of people's generosity and charity and stuff, right? A lot of ungrateful people out there. Darling Whitney was telling me a great story like that at Pickleball today about uh, someone uh, kind of being presumptuous down at God's storehouse and stuff and being banned, you know, because they weren't, just weren't a, a good, a good uh, uh, participant in the charity being received. Um, you know, I think about some laws that just irritate us that aren't there to bless people, that don't show us the heart, uh, a godlike heart. Uh, I think about when I visited Thailand and how uh, disgusting it was, you know, to um, see that uh, people were coming from America, they were coming from Western nations, uh, Europe, they were coming from China and Russia, and they were renting Thailand's boys and girls and young men and young women for the week for sexual sins, like you rent a jet ski, you know, not looking out for people, but taking advantage of them. Tremendous, terrible trafficking that goes on there. It made me sick, you know, when I was there, the two or three trips I, I went on. I think about going to the Bahamas and seeing people uh, come from all over the world to gamble there in their casinos and things. And, you know, in the Bahamas, they have a rule. Bahamians cannot gamble at the casinos because so many Bahamians were throwing their money and their lives away gambling. They said, no, no, you can't we just letting other people come and ruin their lives here, you know, and stuff, but you can't. And, and that's, there's nothing like that in the Old Testament law. I mean, it's all for the care of uh, people. Sometimes in the Old Testament law, God even regulated what he doesn't condone. We know the, Malachi says he hates divorce, but he gave a divorce law. Why? Because uh, of the propensity of men to casually divorce their wives. And he, he said, if you, if you as an Israeli man divorce your wife, you need to write us on a certificate. She's done nothing that makes divorce, that this should happen. This is me being who I am. So she could go to a Sabbath school picnic, you know, or something, meet another guy and produce that certificate, and she could go on, you know. There wouldn't be any aspirations on her character or anything like that, you know. And he also said, if you ever do it, you can't get her back. Now, that's Old Testament. Uh, I've done some remarriages that worked out okay, you know, in uh, these New Testament, New Covenant type times and stuff. But that's the kind of thing that's in God's law, care for his people and concern. Um, he regulates sometimes what he doesn't condone. God doesn't condone slavery, but the Old Testament law, he regulated it so heavily 
that Israel was going to practice more of get-out-of-debt program than a uh, classic slavery like Britain and America had slavery. By the way, if you so much as tipped your servant's tooth in the Old Testament, uh, they were to go free immediately. Well, that's about as low a bar for abuse as I can see, right? Uh, and also kidnapping in the, in the law, Old Testament law, is punishable by death, and the American and British slave trade was built on kidnapping, and so none of that was in there like that, more of a work, you know, I've blown my money and family helped me, I'll, I'll, I'll work for you for seven years, and at the end of that time, more like indentured servitude where you're work, work contracts type stuff. Well, the law reveals the heart of the lawgiver, God's heart for people, but also the law can secondly restrain evil and its effects on others. So God had concern for the poor, but not Robin Hood concern. <laughs> Uh, Israel was told not to favor the poor in a dispute with the rich. You're not going to lie to benefit poor people over rich people. Uh, my friend Mark Hefner, when he was in Taiwan, somebody had an accident with him, and they caused it. But when it went to court, he had to pay because he was the American with more money. And the other fellow said, look, I know I was in the wrong, but, you know, this is the way it works here. You know, missionaries are businessmen, people working over here, they pay, you know. And so that's how it went. Well, that's, uh, Israel said, no, no, don't you tell a lie just because it'll help a poor guy against a rich person. You know, you tell the truth. You tell it as it is. No lies and those type things. Israel was to favor the truth. And, of course, to restrain evil, there was restitution. If you stole, you needed to give back plus interest, a fourth interest. There was retribution um, and uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, you had to restore or retribution. So that's where eye for eye comes in. And it's not so much that every time somebody uh, you know, chipped a tooth, you'd get to punch the other guy to chip his tooth. They'd figure out what a tooth was worth to you and the kind of money could be paid and stuff like that. So eye for eye was, was more balancing than it was worrying about, you know, uh, disfiguring each other in, in equal ways and stuff. Well, the third thing the law did, it does, is it readies us to meet Jesus. It readies us to meet Jesus. Uh, Galatians 3 says, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. After faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. One time I was in New Orleans and I saw a certain amount of lawlessness until the authorities and the law could get hold of a situation. Well, then the law got down there in force and was able to restrain the evil, and thank God they did. I'm talking about watching on TV things after Hurricane Katrina, right? For a while it was lawless, people doing whatever, and then the law came in and restored order. And, of course, that same kind of thing happened again uh, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd and the riots all over the country and stuff like that. We didn't let the law go in, and we had a lot more problems than we needed to have. Um, so as great as the old covenant law was, it's insufficient to give people the hope and peace they need. The law was never meant to be an end in itself. It was meant to ready us for a relationship with Jesus. And uh, as we look at the beautiful law of the Lord, we realize how much different God's priorities are for our life than ours are, and we're driven to acknowledge our need uh, for a good lawyer before God because we all find ourselves having disobeyed all the Ten Commandments. You know, we haven't loved God like we should. There have been times where uh, we uh, lied or didn't tell the whole truth, you know. 
I don't know if you've ever heard Ray Comfort, the great evangelist, walk people through. He'll go and ask them questions. Have you ever heard uh, Ray Comfort witness? Anybody? Well, he's got a great way of uh, sharing the gospel, and maybe this would help you too. He interviews people, and he says, okay, uh, you know, do you view yourself as a sinner? Well, no, no, lawbreaker, no, no, not lawbreaker. Well, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I've told a lie. Most people do. Okay, well, have you ever uh, have, have you ever either stolen something or cheated a little bit on a test or something, you know, uh, anything like that? Yeah, once or twice I did along the way, you know, and that sort of thing. Well, uh, have you ever... Um, had a lustful thought, you know, and well, yeah, everybody does, you know, and those things. He said, okay, well, um, according to you, you don't view sin as a, uh, any big deal, but according to God's word, uh, you are a uh, lying, cheating adulterer who hasn't put God first. And so you are lost in the need of a Savior. And then he talks to them about the, how to uh, take, get take, that taken care of. So anyway, um, pretty interesting way to let the law and our reveal our need of a Savior and to go from there. And um, Hebrews is leading us in this passage to think of Jesus and what he is as our advocate before the Father in some ways like 1 John 2.1 does. What does 1 John 2.1 say? My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. The goal is to live a pleasing life and not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that great? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so we're going to get to this verse 25 in just a moment, but I love the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that good? God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's that John 5 passage I was going to tell you about earlier. Jesus chastised the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so we've got this priest from the order of Melchizedek. He is from the tribe of Judah. That means he's able to be the ruler. He's the priest forever according to the line of Melchizedek. He is the one that can deal with our needs for a priest before a holy God. And as it says here, what the law could not do, Jesus Christ did. Let me read this Romans 8 passage to you. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So when you place your faith and trust in Christ, something wonderful happened. The righteous requirement of the law was met in you, even though you personally have fallen short of it and do and will. Isn't that neat? Jesus Christ, our advocate. Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice. The perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. As he says here, Levi the priest really couldn't do that. You know, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he was a sinner. And then he had to offer sacrifices for people and keep on offering them over and over again. But Christ, he's got the power of an indestructible life. He's got the power of a sinless life. And so when he dealt with sin, it's dealt with once and for all for you and for me. And that's where we're going to bring this passage home with verse 25. Jesus completely saves Verse 25 again says, Because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. 
Therefore, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lived to make, lives to make intercession for them. If you are a Christian this evening, and whoever listens later online, you haven't been somewhat saved. You haven't been saved a little bit. You haven't saved a medium amount. You're saved as saved can be. You're saved to the uttermost. Because of all these things we've looked at, all these requirements met in him as the sinless, perfect priest, being from the tribe, uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek, being from the tribe of Judah as the anointed king that was to come, the Messiah. Because uh, of all these things, we have a better hope. We can now draw near to God. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who do come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word for uttermost there is the Greek word pantelis. pantelis. It means completely or perfectly. So if you have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can rejoice this evening. You're not a little saved. You're a lot saved. (laughs) You're as saved as Billy Graham. You're completely saved, perfectly saved. That's the good news. And I'm going to say this statement here more than just this Wednesday night. Salvation comes not because you're good enough, but because Jesus is God enough. There's your fill in the blank. Jesus is God enough. Isn't that great? Woo! So you're still going to struggle with sin. Of course you will. Because you and I were not good enough, but we're still saved because Jesus is God enough to save sinners, to keep sinners who have trusted in him. That doesn't make it okay to sin, but that's a message for another day. Thank God for salvation full and free in Jesus Christ. Now, so when you struggle with sin, and Satan says, well, see there, Danny, you're not good enough. You're just a rotten sinner. Do you know what I do when Satan says stuff like that to me or I sense him trying to throw that kind of stuff on me? I agree with him. He's right. I'm a sorry sinner. Couldn't save myself originally. Can't keep myself saved. He's right. You know, who is Danny in his essence? A sinner. You know, my old nature. You know, uh, But that's not the whole story, Satan, right? Because even though the goal for me is to not sin and to more and more be like Jesus, and over time the faithful Christian will be more and more like Jesus, Um, Philippians 1, 6 guarantees that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know that beautiful little song from that beautiful little verse. But as 1 John 2, 1 says, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And not only will it get us back on track with fellowship with him as his friend when we take up 725 here that says that we can come to God through him, but he's actually wanting that to happen more sometimes than we want it to happen. The last part of the verse says, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you and me. What does that look like? Father, I know David Thompson's struggling down there. Boy, I wish he'd come talk to me about it. I'm his Savior, and you're his God, and, and I just wish David... Lord, I'm praying for David to realize who he is in Christ. And I just pray he'll take me up in the offer to come in and fellowship, have a little talk with Jesus. And that your, uh, you know, spirit, please, 
for the Father's sake and for my sake, will you impress on David right now that he can confess his sin and will be faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse it, cleanse him from all unrighteousness, get him back on track. He wants that fellowship more than we want to take him up on that offer, you know. And so don't ever forget this beautiful verse. And, of course, that's built on the fact that he's the high priest. We'll just look again real quick at verse 27. He's holy. Is anybody else holy like Jesus? What do you say? No, not one. Hey, is there anybody else who's innocent like Jesus? No, not one. Is there anybody else undefiled like Jesus? No, not one. Is there anybody else separate from sinners? No, not one. Is there anybody else higher than the heavens? No, not one. He does not need daily as those high priests, those old covenant priests like Aaron and sons who would, had a hard time dealing with their own sins, let well the, the sins of others. First for his own sins and then for evils. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, the new covenant, came after the law. This grace that we stand in appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Let's celebrate that in prayer. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.